everybody. We are back. Episode 15 of the Aviation Spotters Podcast. I am your host, Colin. I hope you guys all enjoyed last last week's episode with Dave Honan. I know I had an absolute blast recording that episode with him, and I know he had an awesome time as well. And I hope you guys out there really enjoyed it as well, because he is such an interesting guy to talk to. We could have gone on for hours and hours and hours. And we actually did go on for hours and hours and hours after we finished up with the interview. And uh, my guest on this episode is also an amazing photographer. And you guys are going to love some of the stories and what he has to tell. Because my guest is absolutely one of the best aviation photographers, not just in the United States, but in the world. Before that, though, I just want to have a little announcement. Not a lot of people have been kind of emailing me uh, with profile recommendations and people to come on the show. I have got a couple DMs on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and whatnot, but um, I I was thinking a good way to have people recommend uh, profiles is to use the hashtag aviation spotters podcast or hashtag AvSpottersPod. so if you guys go on instagram twitter facebook whatever platform uses a hashtag that you know people share aviation videos or aviation photos use the hashtag aviation spotters podcast or hashtag AvSpottersPod. i'll be following those hashtags on my respected uh, social media platform so if you guys comment on a certain photo or photos from a certain person with that hashtag, I'll be able to see those hashtags and I can go in there and talk to the person directly. Um, or if you upload a photo and even use a hashtag within your photo, I'll be able to see that and then I can come say, hey, come on the show and let's let's talk aviation, right? Um, but please only do it on public profiles. I cannot see private profiles if you guys do that. So please make sure and do them on public profiles. And if you guys, you know, Want to send a profile? Please send me an email, DM me. We're going to talk about that at the end, so you, yeah, you guys already know the drill. If you've been listening to episode 15, you guys are really sticking with it. I'm proud of you. Thank you. So you guys know how to contact me. Anyway, let's move it to this week's guest. My guest today is one of the most well-known aviation photographers in the world. He has done freelance work for USA Today. He has also just won Aviation Week's photo contest for 2020 with some of his with one of his absolutely remarkable photos from the cabin at night. Well turning. We'll talk about that later on the show, but it's my pleasure to introduce my very good friend, Mr. Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren. Jeremy, how are you doing this evening? I'm not doing too bad yourself. Thanks so much for having me on and for that uh, that uh, absolutely phenomenal uh, introduction. I'm uh, blushing a little bit. Well, I I know you can't see it. I'm already like pretty solidly white. But. <laughs> hey, I mean that's all true. I mean you are, <laughs> I think, and a lot of other people agree with me. Is when you're one of you are definitely one of the top tier aviation spotters in the world, and um, and I'm actually lucky enough to call you a friend of mine. But um, anyway, dude, thank you so much for coming on here. Um, I know a lot of people are really going to love what you're going to say, and um, so yeah, let's uh, let's kind of get to know you a little bit, man. So 
let's tell the listener where you're from, how you got into photography, and uh, kind of what are some side hobbies that you do? Well, that's a, that's a complicated question. It has some easy answers for the first few and a little little tougher on the, the long one. But the short version, I grew up on the East Coast uh, outside Boston, Massachusetts. I went to college out there and then moved out to Seattle about 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And I don't, time means nothing anymore, so some amount of time ago. But, uh, yeah, been out here for a little while now, and uh, I got into spotting when I was very young. Uh, my first trip that I can remember, I think my, my parents uh, saved up uh, to take a vacation every year, and we were lucky and privileged in that regard, and we would fly out of Bradley, a small little airport in Connecticut, and I... I think my first aviation photo was an Arrow L-1011. I was maybe uh, maybe nine or ten years old in the early 1990s, and I wanted the airplanes to get closer and fill up the frame better. And uh, gradually, over time, worked up my my camera equipment and saved up and scraped up money to to buy bigger lenses. And by the time I got out here, it was a relatively uh, pretty hardcore hobby and has been a hobby slash career somewhere in between the two uh, kind of ever since. Do I have hobbies outside of spotting? I don't know, man. These days, not really. <laughs> but uh, yeah, big, big aviation collectible guy too. Well, there's that. We'll talk about that in a second because I know that you have collected some. I don't know how you got some of the stuff, but we'll talk about it here in a second. But you have also so this guy also want to talk about um what you do with uh with their zoo photography so you also are the i believe head correct me if i'm wrong but you're also the head photographer for the seattle woodland zoo right yeah i do all the visual content management and creation at woodland park zoo in seattle and that's Pretty much across the board, anything that requires a, a visual, if it's a video for social, a photo for an ad campaign, uh, something that the vets need to be able to reference or put into a peer review journal, uh, we do the photo and, 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 or I do the photo and video for that. And it's uh, pretty exciting, very different. What's your favorite animal out there at the zoo? Oh man, you know, people ask me that all the time and it's like asking for a favorite plane. I feel like it's the favorite animal is the one that is in, in front of me doing the right thing at the right time. Uh, just like the, the same plane is the, or my favorite plane is the one that's going in front of the right weather at the right time at the right moment. But I'd, I'd say that the, the gorillas are probably pretty, pretty up there. So is the tiger. Love the tiger. They're pretty photoenergetic. They are. They are. And they're just, uh, yeah, I, I like them. They're, they're fun to photograph. They have a wide range of behaviors, and I'm a big fan of cats. Yeah, they're. I've seen some of your zoo photos, and they're 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 pretty right. But you're going to, need to have an answer for the favorite airplane later on, so I needed to think about that because I, I will need an actual answer, not just ooh every airplane. Like we're we're going to need an actual answer for that. Hey, look, one. man, I, you know I, I got to make the Boeing and Airbus people unhappy. I'm a known quantity. I get letters, you know. So just uh, oh yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an answer. I'll give you an answer. Oh, I, I oh yeah. Um, but I see that's a few questions down, so I got time. I got time. 
Oh, we, you know, we have plenty of time. Uh, so you've also done work, freelancing work, for USA Today. So I also kind of want to ask, and I know a lot of people ask, well, how do I become a photographer from these big news outlets? So if you can just explain kind of how you got into the USA Today gig and kind of, you know, the other flip side is like, is like kind of what is the freelance photographer in a way for those people that don't really know what that is yeah so a, a freelance photographer is the, the basic is that they go around they, they're not necessarily tied to a company per se so they do jobs on a contract basis uh, sometimes they can take a while sometimes uh, and you're tied you know for six months to a year whatever and then uh, more often than not uh, you just pick up a job when someone gives you a call and then you finish it, and then you're done. You see a lot of it in like IT work, stuff like that too, uh, and you know, kind of known as the gig economy. But with uh, with USA Today, uh, I hitched up with them maybe five years ago. Uh, unfortunately, the relationship is is no more as of today, uh, as of uh, this year. But it was a good run, a good four or five year run uh, that I thoroughly enjoyed. But that was the it, it took a long it took a while to work into that so I started off in 2009 with NYC aviation uh, which was a, a, a big player at the time around 2009 10 11 12 in that range uh, along with airline reporter was in its heyday around that point as well and uh, took over the live news uh, and reporting and so was doing a lot of the travel, was doing a lot of the Boeing stuff. Uh, my first assignment was the 787 first flight. So that was a, a heck of a way to start. And it was a combination of doing both uh, article writing as well as uh, making photos. And uh, NYC ended up uh, giving way to doing local news photography. So I'd pick up... Uh, if a staff photographer was out at one of the papers on vacation, they might ask me to fill in on something. And a local alternative weekly paper started picking me up on sports. So I started picking up uh, uh, Mariners, Seattle Mariners games, which at some point, you know, like, why bother going? They just lose every time, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, and it was a hard bring up Mariners fan. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, that's, why, that's why I still hold to the Red Sox a little bit. You know, you got... That's the advantage of being bi-coastal. You can pick and choose between which one's doing good. Uh, so picked up local sports, Mariners, Seahawks, stuff like that, and uh, did uh, parades, protests, kind of anything uh, around the city that was happening, and then parlayed that into working with uh, Archive, which was the predecessor to Airways uh, magazine, and then... Uh, when I ended uh, my time with them, uh, picked up uh, on retainer with USA Today, offering everything from uh, assignments. Uh, as I picked up, I think it was three or four stories with photos a month, and then uh, the ability to be on call to help with um, filling in background, uh, particularly since I had a being in Seattle with Boeing and everything. A lot of the work that I was doing was stuff that you'd read but you didn't know necessarily was was me so you know it's writing three paragraphs of background on the 737 max program or something like that and uh eventually picked up the choice little assignment of making a monthly photo gallery for them which was 
just a, a ton of fun and a, a great had a great time with that while it lasted. Yeah, I know you came out one day just as a cheap trip and all that, and um, you just come to get some Boise photos for uh, USA Today and, and whatnot, and uh, that was that was a that was a pretty pretty fun day. I I, I thought uh, kind of meeting out there at BOI and you know kind of showing you around a little bit and you doing your own thing, and um, I actually had one person say, "Hey, Colin, your photos in USA Today or whatever." I'm going, that looks like my spot. That's like the photo I would take, and I'm going, oh no, that's Jeremy's. <laughs> He's like, no, it's it's a friend of mine. It's not mine. Um, but uh, so USA Today, and also you have been published in pretty much the majority of any major aviation news source. Am I right in saying that? Uh, at least the U.S. ones. I certainly quite a few. Yeah. What's out of all those assignments? that throughout your whole kind of freelancing work and that sort of stuff, what was your favorite assignments that you got to got to do on behalf of some of these um, uh, outlets? Mm, that's a good question. I have two pretty easy answers for that. Uh, the first one it was the last commercial DC-10 flight with Biman Bangladesh for Archive, and I was on staff for them at the time, and that was... Uh, maybe 30 of us on a DC-10 from Dhaka, Bangladesh to, uh, where was it, to Birmingham, UK via Kuwait. And then the other one was with USA Today and that the, the, the last United 747 flight. And both of them were so much fun. I think I met you down, I think I, I met you at SFO because you were on the flight and I was just out there spotting for that last USA 747 flight, I believe. Yeah, I think we did. We met up in the terminal uh, a little bit before it, it went out. Yeah, I actually almost got to go on the plane beforehand, but unfortunately that kind of fell through, and so I've never stepped foot on a United 747, unfortunately. But um, well, that's that's pretty awesome, man. And, God, yeah, we're going to have some fun talking about the spotting stories. I know you have you have not just spotting stories, but just general stories in, in general about aviation, which I think the listener is going to love to hear. But um, real quick, before we move it on, what would you consider your home airport? Seattle, Boeing Field, definitely. It's Not pain? Sorry? Not, not pain field? Uh, about equidistant between the two of them now, but Boeing Field's the one that I find myself at more often. It's busier, so you can just sit there and park for an afternoon and, and uh, see planes come in and out. They tend to get the weirder visitors transient airplanes and such military test planes tend to come in and out of boeing Painfield, i think has is a little bit more fun to photograph uh, but it's way less exciting overall you can't if you go on an average saturday you're going to sit there and you're going to see the one test flight and a cessna 172 on the far runway and a and a bunch of well now uh, horizon uh, ombreers uh, whereas Boeing Field, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, no, I I agree with that statement. As you know, last week with Dave, and I, I love going to BFI, and I think BFI is a great airport to spot at. And um, yeah, hopefully, there'll be a little more action now with the Max coming back officially, which I think uh, us and the aviation community are very very excited about having the Max back. Yeah, it's been busy already. I mean, I'm sure if you've been paying attention to it, the you know, flight aware and flight radar, the boards lighten up with max max flights this week. 
Yeah, and they just certified the first aircraft from uh, Boeing back into commercial service, I believe, the United 737 MAX 9, I believe, if I'm correct in saying. Yeah, yeah, you are. They, they delivered one yesterday and then another today. Yeah, so they're back back ready to go, and I know airlines have already started commercial service with them. Um, I believe Goal officially started theirs today. American has already restarted commercial service with theirs today. Really? Or, or yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I believe. I, I, I Could it be just some employee-only test think it was an employee or whatever? Only. Okay, because I know they did a, American did a media flight. They did. Right? And Okay, and then they did the employee-only flight. All right, but I know Goal has already re-entered service. Yeah, they told American, hold my beer, and then they took off. <laughs> Literally, I mean that's just like less than a week, two less like a week, week and a half. They're already back in service, which is, which you know, that's great. I mean, good to see the Max back. Um, hopefully, Boeing fixed everything and all that. We'll find out. It is a very pretty looking plane, though. It is. It's God, very it's aggressive. Just, it, it, I feel like the aesthetics and the the balance of the plane is just really nice. It is. It's those winglets look very nice, and this the tail cone really. It just kind of makes the aircraft flow a lot better with that tail cone and, and stuff. I believe, and it's kind of interesting to think about though. Is you know I, I've flown on the A two twenty, and I personally think the A two twenty or C series, depending how however you want to say it, is better than the Max. Oh, 100 percent. And I thoroughly do believe mm-hmm. that. Same. Yeah, because if you if you if you think about it this way. The, the 737 has cockpit dimensions from the 707. It's, you know, it's designed from a cockpit from the 50s. The A320, I mean, not just, sorry, not just a cockpit, but the whole kind of aircraft layout in general is based off the 707 way back from when. I mean, yes, it has changed here and there throughout the whole, what, 50, 60 years of, of its design. You know, the, the A320 is designed back in the 80s. The, the A220 is a brand new clean slate design, and it's it's yeah. I, we can we can so we can talk about the the Max versus the Neo versus the 220, but I, let's we'll say that for for a after show discussion. But what's your thoughts on that real quick before I move it on? On which in particular? Uh, this kind of the Max Neo 220 discussion. I think the. I mean, they they filled it. The, the Neo and the Max are competitors against one another from a market perspective. The 220 is is kind of in a class all by itself, and for the most part, C Series was or Bombardier when it was their project anyway. It was fairly clear that they didn't really want to compete. But purely from an aesthetic standpoint, uh, it's I love 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 the C Series. Absolutely love it, and I I I think the dimensions work. Uh, on the Max better than it did on the NG series. I think the A320 fills out as a, as a better airplane aesthetically uh, with the Neo, with the Leap engines, than it did uh, without them. Uh, I think that's true of both of those, since they're evolutions rather than revolutions. But the, the A220 is just, it's, an incre- it's a great ride. Delta in particular in the U.S., if you're U.S.-based, you, mm-hmm. you can't argue with what they did with that airplane. It's just gorgeous. No, they, they, hit, it out of the, they hit it out of the park I think so. with, that, with their whole layout. And Air Canada, I haven't flown on them yet, but they look like they did a fantastic job on theirs as well. So I, they were going to start service to Seattle, as you might recall, in May. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know, the best laid plans of humanity uh, didn't really pan out. Didn't really <laughs> pan out this year, so... 
but I was really looking forward to getting on Air Canada's C series as well. And uh, sorry, A220. That was that was funny. The A220, even the naming convention was just like a little ha 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 bullying. I thought that was a riot. Yeah, I love how Delta's getting like Jet Blue. Oh yeah, Jet Blue's uh, A220 district its first flight today. Also, uh, we recorded this on December 9th. So um, yeah, they took their first flight today. I believe I saw, but um, they're yeah. Before I go off on an A220 tangent of why it's the greatest narrow-body aircraft currently in the market, let's finish <laughs> the podcast and we can go back to why it is. Uh, let's talk about camera gear, man. Uh, what do you currently use and what have you currently used in the past? I've always been a Canon guy. Force of habit. Uh, my, my, my mother uh, was a uh, fine art photographer uh, before, before I came along anyway. And uh, we might edit that part out, but my, <laughs> I, my mother was a fine art photographer and she used Canon. And I always thought uh, that they were good cameras and I just transitioned because it was what I knew when I got my first camera was uh, my own DSLR or not DSLR, SLR Film Rebel in, I don't know, the late 1990s, early 2000s, and then transitioned over to digital on the 40D. 40D to 7D, 7D to 5D2, 5D2 to 3, to 1, and now I, I mostly use the 1 series with a, a 5D3 as a backup, along with all the Canon lenses that they bring out. Um, so you have just the 1DX, not the, not the 1DX Mark II or Mark III? Yeah, the, the, the Zoo, my job at the Zoo, we, uh, a generous... Uh, donor several years ago allowed us to upgrade so i wasn't using my own gear so with the zoo i use 1dx2s uh but i personally still use a 1dx1 and a 5d mark III. awesome um talk about lenses i know i've seen your gargantuan 400 millimeter prime but uh what else do you use besides your 400 millimeter uh, that one's actually been taking a bit of a back seat because it's just so stinking heavy uh that i don't bring it out as much as i used to the poor things just sitting in there just waiting, waiting to be picked up. I'll take it if you. I'll take off your hands. Well, let's if you talk. Want, you know? Let's talk more <laughs> afterward. Uh, I moved to a 100, the new 100 to 400. Uh, I've got that as the general walk-around lens. I've got a 600 f4, um, 24, 70, 28, 50, 1.2, 24, 1. 4, 17 to 40 f4, 1.4 times extender. And 70 to 200, 282, roughly. So pretty much any Canon L glass you pretty much have right now? Uh, definitely not. I can think of several things out there, much like that. I'd love that new 800. And all of all of my big prime lenses, the 600 and the 400, are the original versions, and they're they're heavier mm. than hell. And I don't enjoy ice baths, so uh, that's part of the reason why I got the 100, 400. It's just, it's light. It's easy. It's still pretty sharp. It's just slow. And so when I, if I need anything faster, I'll, or if I want the extra distance, I'll use the 600 or I'll uh, break the 400 out of the closet. And it's always happy to see the light of day. But mm. the, the 100, 400 is slow though. Yeah, I have that, that same one, the USM2. And I, that's, God, I, I, cannot think of a better lens to take aviation photos with i absolutely love that lens and for every yeah it was very expensive but it was worth it's worth every dollar absolutely pound for pound dollar for dollar it is hard to find a different more versatile lens 
than the 100-400. Sure. And uh, I've used the 200-400 to 400 with the extender quite a bit, and I like I like that lens a lot. But I do not have $13,000 in cash. Even, even my big primes were all taken from the local rental excuse me, the local rental store when they got the next version and the version after that. Uh, so I got a good deal on them. I uh, appreciate uh, that they uh, helped make that happen. Um, but like otherwise, there wasn't any way I was getting any of those. So Yeah. But eventually the 200-400 will do the same, and then I will, I will probably try to add that to the arsenal. That competes with the 100-400, but even that isn't quite the same range when you need that wider end. The 100 starting point is no. just... It's so good. I really agree with that, and I hope one day that Canon makes that 100 to 500 for the mirrorless R mount into the EF mount, and I hope else they kind of bring down the aperture too a little bit. But having that extra 500, extra 100 millimeters on top, especially if you're shooting full frame, would make a world of difference. And especially with that Canon quality, you'd know at 500 millimeters, that thing will still be tack sharp. Yeah, especially if they open it up and they make it like an F4. Instead of a, a five six on the top yeah. end, that will be a that will be a hot lens. That will be a very hot it lens. It would be so. So Canon, hey, get on that. You would make a lot of money more than you would think <laughs> with just keeping that R. If you make that EF and drop the aperture down just a little bit, you're I can you can guarantee people are going to buy those out of stock within the first day of offering. So. Let's go, Canon. Come on, chop chop. <laughs> yeah, man. Any Canon reps listening out there, you give me a call. We'll work on it. It's gonna be amazing. Hey, I'll be a sponsor. You send me one, and I will <laughs> preach that lens to to the choir. Just, yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, let's uh, let's moving on, man. We are we're we're going off a lot of tangents tonight. We should probably keep this, you know, kind of in the podcast <laughs> before we start losing viewership. What is your favorite airport to go spot at? I'm assuming it's still BFI. No, probably my favorite. So for me, when I'm thinking of airports, uh, the longer I've done it, the more the context is king. And part of it is was built in for USA Today that a photo is more useful if it provides more context. And so when I'm considering making a photograph, uh, I'm primarily considering my audience and when you're a freelancer, to tie back into what we were talking about earlier, when you're doing it as a profession, your client, the end user, is the one that's the most important, right? And so for me, um, when I'm doing stuff with USA Today, uh, specifically for that gallery, when, when that was, was, was lasting, the ability to set the plane in a location was really important. And also, I just think they make stronger photos to begin with, A, because it provides anyone looking at it, whether they like planes or not, context. And then B, mm -hmm. just the background makes the photo. So places like Anchorage, incredibly gorgeous, wonderful backgrounds from any angle yeah. you take it. Uh, wide variety. LA, it's cliche, but like LAX is phenomenal because you can hit any angle from virtually any runway. If you think of a composition, if you have enough time and patience, you'll get it there. So I, I love those two in particular. Uh, Boeing Field, from an AvGeek perspective, you're over the course of the year, you're rarely to get any, you're rarely to get more unusual stuff too many other places. But from a photographer perspective, uh, places like Anchorage, um, LAX, 
Vancouver can be really good. BC, uh, Taipei can be really good. Places where you can add a lot of layer, you can add a lot of depth, you can add a lot of uh, a background attention to fill out that photo, fill out that context, give uh, give the, the, the viewer something more interesting to look at. That is one hell of an answer, and that is actually probably the most beautiful answers I've ever heard when it comes to, to answering that question. And I, you are absolutely right. It does take a lot of context. And that's, I, that's a, I think a lot of younger spotters don't don't realize is exactly what you just said i mean a lot of people just go out to the spot take their photos i mean get the blue sky you know you think i mean some blue sky shots are absolutely beautiful don't don't get don't get us wrong mm -hmm. but you are you hit the nail on the head it's about what people want to see and especially if you could find a, a backdrop or something that adds that depth to that photo i mean i think any airport is great. I mean, I've been working now that I have new camera gear. Like I'm trying spots at BOI that I couldn't attempt at this time a year ago. Right. Uh, and I, I mean, mean, it's already showing. I mean, Boise is another great example. If you had an international airport there, you'd be you like you just you'd crush it because everything would be amazing. Uh, you know, you had the American uh, 787 that visited earlier today. You've got that nice uh, departure with the snow background. That is so much more interesting of a photograph than if it were against blue sky. And, like, don't get me wrong, I am constantly caught between identities in which the av geek in me is like, oh my gosh, this is crazy thing. Let's just get like a shot of it. And the photographer in me is kicking myself that I didn't try something different, that I didn't try something interesting. And, like, Dave Honan, great example of a guy who goes out there and makes interesting stuff consistently. All of his, uh, all of his fighter aircraft, uh, you know, stuff that he does up at uh, his Rimrock Lake location, is gorgeous. Would it have the same impact? Would the shot be the same impact if it was against a blue sky? No, that works entirely because of the background. You could put the exact same shot in front of blue sky, and it's still going to be cool, but it's not going to be freaking cool. It's the background that makes it every single time. Agreed. 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 And like you, you use that very well yourself. Um, I love your your Boise work. Uh, it's great stuff, and you're using that background like super effectively. That's what makes that location work so well. Is it has that gorgeous mountain background? It's right there. It's begging to be put into context. Yeah, and I was also going to say is I'm caught between the same two um, paradoxes that you are. You know, especially with like a rare aircraft that's coming in. Example, the NASA DC-8 when it came to Boise. I was like, I need a good shot of it. So, actually, not just the NASA DC-8. Today, which is, again, December 9th, we had a Boeing test flight come in from Payne Field under a Boeing registration that will be going to American upon delivery. Um, I've already got an email of a dude asking why American was flying in here. I'm like, guys, it's it's not American. It's it was a Boeing test flight. There didn't say American on it. You just saw the tail. But how people like people like us are nerds about it. We know that the average Joe looking up in the sky doesn't. So I, I understand that. But it's like today, I didn't know what he was going to do. I like rolling the dice. I my my saying is go big or go home. But I wanted a shot of this aircraft because we haven't seen a 787 in Boise in three years. This was the first Dash 8 
since the original test aircraft since 2011. That is a long waiting time. So it is, and that's why I love going to Seattle because right. I go see this stuff. But in Boise, in Boise, this stuff is extremely rare. That's what people don't realize. Boise is a very boring spotting airport. 90% of the time, you're going to take E-175 shots, Q-400 shots. You know, it's, 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 I, I mean, I only post the interesting stuff because it's the interesting stuff. Like, you know, I see the stuff every day. I was born and raised out here. I've been seeing this stuff my whole life. But that being said, I wanted to get the blue sky shot, and I did. And I'm going... Okay, well, what next? You know, that he stopped. He t- he's going to do a taxi back. And I kind of shot a little backlit stuff, kind of got some of my own personal video, and then I gambled. I'm like, there's one spot where I can get him taking off with the mountain in the background. But I want to get him landing with that same background. And I'm going, well, I don't know if he's going to do a full stop or not. He hasn't said on the radio yet. So I gambled, and I went to my landing spot, and I went to forego the takeoff shot if it was potentially not going to happen, even though I got two landing shots. And I'm glad I did because I rolled the dice and the gamble paid off because he did he did a full stop and he had to sit for 10 minutes that allowed me to get to my other spot to get him taking off at my other location. So, I mean, we're not saying, you know, go big or go home and I'll potentially bet, like, if there's a one-of-a-kind aircraft coming in that you might never see again. Go for the safe shot so you have a good photo of it. But if you feel confident in your ability, roll the dice and, and go and go big because it, it will it might pay off in the very end. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, like you know, to your point, I get caught between the two fairly often, and uh, if uh, if the choice is between possibly missing it altogether, and but maybe getting something epic but I know I might never see it again, I'm probably going to stick with the safe shot because I just want proof I saw it. But if any time that you have the choice, uh, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of having an, an airport that just has the same thing over and over again. SeaTac's not that different. You, you can just start to get creative and throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks, and a bunch of times nothing sticks, and then sometimes one does, and you can kind of get creative. So that's kind of the fun part about seeing the same thing over and over again is that you lose nothing in trying something new. All right, well, we were talking about favorite airport to spot at, and we just went on a complete tangent again. But you know what? I think that was a very, very um, useful discussion because um, I think that was a very beautiful answer. So um, I talked with Dave last week about kind of these same questions about what's your favorite airplane to spot and then what's your favorite airplane. So I think we're just going to combine the combine those two questions, you know, is, is what is kind of your favorite airplane to spot and also kind of what is your favorite airplane of all time it's cliche but i love the 747 it's gorgeous lines nicely balanced looks good in almost any paint scheme it's just a fun airplane uh that's my my favorite airplane overall um that said uh if you put a series of dc-10s and md-11s landing in front of me from now until the end of time at a quarter angle, I would never get bored. Love that angle. Love that plane. So, I, I was actually just about to say, I remember on your 400mm lens hood, you have a KLM MD-11 sticker. That's true. You also have airline memorabilia of the Mad Dogs, 
and you are on the last DC-10 passenger DC-10 flight ever. So am I right in saying that anything McDonnell Douglas, you are all for? Oh, yeah. You know, that's, uh, yeah, I love Douglas airplanes. Uh, part of the reason I was attracted to them initially is, you know, they tended to have that black nose cone. And they did that a lot mm. with DC-10s. The MD-80s had those. Uh, be- and one of the reasons that I was so excited to do the the Bima in Bangladesh is because I'd seen photos of that thing at Amsterdam or JFK before they got blacklisted because they were very unsafe for a long time. They get <laughs> that nose cone, black nose cone on the on the end of it was just it's just so hot, uh, so hot. And the MD80 uh, with American and other airlines with the Alitalia used to do it with the black nose cone. I loved that. But there's something about the 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 Douglas aircraft look from the DC two to the three to the the nine eight ten. I love those airplanes and those giant windows that they were known for was perhaps the only yeah. thing that transferred over to Boeing that was perhaps worthwhile in the long run. Those beautiful big windows. I know you may not have you may not have a favorite, but um, out of all the Douglas aircraft and, and McDonnell Douglas. What uh? What was what would you consider your favorite? Oh, the one ten, of those? definitely the ten. I, I've been lucky enough yeah. to fly on the three, the seven, the eight, nine, and the ten. But the ten is the best looking, I think. So you, we brought up the beam in Bangladesh and then being the last passenger operator. Just real quick, can you just tell us what was that flight like? First of all, flying on an airline that was blacklisted, but also just the experience of. No one except for maybe the 10 tanker guys and the cargo pilots will ever experience again, but you as is it in a pastor configuration. It was pretty cool. Uh, I think I remember talking with one of the people on board as I was getting quotes for the article, looking out the window and seeing Istanbul fly under us. Uh, we landed in Kuwait City and all of these... Uh, all these airplanes sitting out on the tarmac that um, it was perhaps frowned upon to photograph. The interior didn't look like it had been updated since the day it was delivered in, I think, the early 80s. Oh, my the God. The pilots were chain-smoking almost the entire flight. Uh, it was, <laughs> And I jump-seated the departure out of Dhaka and the landing into, into Birmingham, and it was a... Uh, and stuck the article in a way that I was quite happy with and got the photos that I was happy with. So it, on both a personal and professional level, it was a uh, knock out of the park. Loved it. I, the wing is so unique. Uh, and to see a lot of those kind of... Because I guess to, to take a step back there, I think what's interesting is like you look at a Delta plane that was built... Like If Delta was running a DC-9 today, people would walk on and they'd think it's an A220 that was built yesterday. It's like, That yeah. interior doesn't look like it's changed. Uh, and Beeman, the, the interior didn't look like it's changed for a second. So it immediately transported you back to when the DC-10 was a big player, when it was still the thing. So it wasn't just that it was a... Uh, an unusual plane it was also like everything about it felt like a, a, a bit of a trip back in time and that's what was so unique yeah i am so jealous you got to do that I, the dc-10 is just one of my all-time favorite aircraft because when i was growing up as a kid we used to fly to minneapolis 
And one of my very first, and I still can vividly see this photo in my head, is all the old Northwest yeah. DC-10s with their red tails all lined up. And I rem- I that's still, I love the DC-10. And the other thing I love about the DC-10 is yep. the sound they make. That, that ring. They had that very, and even the MD-11s, they had that very distinctive ring to them because of the top engine. And I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful airplane. In fact, uh, inadvertently, uh, Northwest Orient DC tens there today's Instagram post. Oh no! A uh, c- couple of oversized postcards uh, of theirs that I, I picked up. So feel free to check those out. Self plug. Definitely, we'll we'll get to how people can find your work at the very end um, because yeah, they're gonna they're gonna want to. Um, this might be a two-parter. This might actually be a two-part episode. We don't know yet. God, that's just awesome, man. I am so jealous. I mean, I've been blessed and on and just so lucky to uh, being able to hop on with 10 Tanker once in a Boise and seeing them here, but that's as close as I've ever been to flying on one. Uh, you've also flown on a KC-10, no, too, right? No, KC-135. Uh, okay. All right. Well, you're still flown, you're still flown on a 707 derivative. Um, have you flown on a 707? I am working chance? very hard on that. But no, not yet. I I think I, well maybe with all your media credentials, you might be able to hop on one of those Omega ones before oh, they're it's gone. It's gonna be a gonna be a long shot, but that's the hope. Yeah, well, you can't go to Iran anymore. No. So and they actually no saw how yeah, retired. Yeah, theirs are gone. Yeah. MIT's is gone. So I think it's just the Omega and some Israeli Defense Force one, and the uh, oh, the Omega one seems a lot more likely than the Israeli Defense Force one. So that's where I'm gonna put my eggs. And they also got some of those U.S. very top secret 707s also that they are not going to allow any media inside unless they completely take out the interior of it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, all right, man. So, do you even have a least favorite aircraft to take a photo of? Or do you just kind of like all aircraft deserve a photo? That was an interesting twist you threw there at the end. Like, does an aircraft deserve a photo? I don't know. That's a weird. That's a weird question. I'll have to think about that one a little bit more. But uh, not really. There isn't any aircraft that I, I dislike. There's ones that I don't care as much about. But like, I'll be fine if I don't see a Q400 for a while, or a 737NG. But I like them. They're fine. They don't get me excited anymore. When I first moved here, I was thrilled to see a Q400. I drove out to SeaTac and. I sat under there and I shot the same exact angle against blue sky for like a week of them. And then I was like, I think I've had enough. Yeah. And I think, uh, you're, yeah, well, <laughs> you could have just, um, well, I mean, that being said, they were still in the old horizon livery, actually like horizon horizon. And then you had the, uh, Alaska. And now you have the current Alaska and all the college games. So I mean, there was some variety in there. You got to go out and see. Oh, so I have often. fun shooting them now for the exact same reason I was talking about earlier. I can, I can mess around with them. If I if I screw up the shot and it yeah. didn't pan out, whatever, just wait ten minutes, and there'll be another one. So they're they're yeah. they're fun now because I, I get to play a lot with them, and I think they're a neat plane. Uh, but you know, I'd be okay if I didn't see one for a while. Yeah, no, I love flying the Q four hundred. I think it's it's one of those aircraft that they're uh, that will get me home anytime if they're not on maintenance right. delay. But uh, I digress. Uh, what is the rarest aircraft, well, in your case, been around or taken I a photo I do not of? know. 
and I've spent a lot of time thinking about that in the past week, and I do not know. Disappointing, I know. Well, I mean, you were on the last pastor DC ten flight. We already talked about that. That could, can be that's a very rare opportunity. Weren't you on one of the last also MD eleven passenger flights with KLM? Uh, I got on there before they were gone, but I, like four or five months, so they were around for a while after I took a ride on them. But it was in their in their waning months. Yeah, that was kind of fun one. Um, I flew on the Ericsson Aerotanker DC seven. That's pretty up there. I you just did that. You also were there with Neptune's P two V retirement, which I unfortunately got sick the weekend of and couldn't make it. And I was I was invited there by Neptune and I couldn't make it because I got the freaking flu, not coronavirus. <laughs> I've already had that. I got I got pretty sick and I didn't want to travel and I was just absolutely heartbroken. I couldn't make it up there for the final flight of the P two Vs. Those were those were pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know. I've thought a lot about it. There's uh, definitely some unusual planes that I've seen, but uh, it's unusual is a subjective term, right? Because like uh, Ching, uh, one I think to, and I think you're heading in this direction. One of my favorite places that I've ever spotted was in Dhaka in Bangladesh. Met up with a local who took me up to a, a spot nearby, and there were uh, Chinese military fighters, but like. A few generations removed so Chengdu 7s and MiG 29s for the Bangladesh Air Force were flying around and like if you live in Bangladesh that's just Tuesday but if you live uh, certainly in North America that's a hell of a day you can't that's an awesome day uh, to see those things go shooting down the runway for those that don't know, the Chengdu J7 is the MiG-21 Chinese licensed copy of it, the MiG-21. Uh, when it takes off, it has to relight twice. So you hear a thud and then a boom uh, for every takeoff. It's wild. Wow. That's that's pretty awesome. Um, that has to that be one, up there. You know what? Uh, I'm going to count that one. That is up there. You know what? The rarest aircraft that you've ever taken a photo of, just for podcast purposes, is a Chengdu J7 for the Bangladesh Air Force in Dhaka. Done. Sold. I think that's a... <laughs> there we go. And a lot of other stuff that you probably can't even remember. <laughs> uh, yeah. that's. I am so jealous that you get to do this stuff, man. I really am. You, we have a lot of stories. I know that you have done a lot of... A lot of um, photography around the world for a lot of different companies and all that, but man, can you tell us some? Can you tell us some uh, another epic story of uh, of something that that you've done? Hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I, I hmm. here I'm burning up time here. Uh, let's see. So, oh, do we do we got all night, man? We got all night. But you, let's just kind of I, I, the stuff that I know that you've done. You were out there for the first ever flight of the yeah. 787 Dreamliner, the 747-8 S and just the I, F. correct? I was on a just B-29 during the, the I, I feel like such an asshole saying this, but I was uh, working for the crew with who runs the B-29 during the first flight of the I, so yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I guess I guess that's a, that's a valid, that's a valid <laughs> excuse not to be there. Um you've done multiple you've flown the major you've flown a lot of passenger aircraft that 
you don't that doesn't exist anymore. So man, out of out of any of those, just uh, just start going off on one, man. I mean, I I thorough I would a lot of people uh, agree with me. I think we'd love to hear some of the stuff that you have to tell about this sort of stuff. Delta seven forty seven flight retired it to the desert, and we did a. I was the pool photographer for that one, which is effectively when they only let uh, a handful of media or one usually have a specific opportunity, which was to put cameras up on the flight deck, and then you uh, you have to share that with everybody else. So it's not just yours; it goes into the pool. So you know, Associated Press could pull it, Delta <clears throat> Airlines can use it for their purposes, et cetera, et cetera, and. Um, Got to put the GoPros up on the flight deck on the Delta 747 that uh, flew into the desert. And I think we did a low pass before landing at 20 feet over the deck, according to the pilots. And then they said 20 feet was enough and they should stop. And, uh, you know, because why not go for 10 at that point? But I guess it was too far. So that was pretty unique. You only can tie the lowest altitude record. Um, (laughs) That was pretty cool. The KC-135 flight was pretty cool. At one point, we were flying along, and there was a giant thud in the airplane. You know, and I think most of the people listening to this have spent a lot of time in airplanes. You get to know the sounds that you should be afraid of and the ones that you shouldn't be. And there was a giant thud that I'd never heard in an airplane before. And, like, I kind of already did the discount to figure, like, well, this thing was built in 1959, so it's going to probably make some sounds I'm not used to, but it got everybody's attention. And finally, at one point, one of us was like, is that something we should be worried about? And the crew chief was like, well, we're still alive, so it couldn't have been that bad. And that was the last we talked about it. We just kept on going. (laughs) Um, That was kind of cool. Did the NASA DC-8 and fell asleep on it because I'm lame. Uh, we 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 were going in a racetrack for six hours over the Pacific Northwest at 40,000 feet, and uh, it was a 2 a.m. 2 a.m. on base time, so I didn't sleep really at all, and I fell asleep on the plane, and then afterward, I was like, that was stupid. I'm never going to get to be on a DC-8 again. Why didn't I force myself to stay awake? But now it makes a kind of stupid, fun story. Like, I had the nerve to fall asleep on a DC-8. Yeah, man. Gosh, like one of the the one the six that are still airworthy in the world. Yeah, and I think the only one that doesn't require a statement of faith to get on it. So, yeah, since the other one, yeah. I think only works for a religious organization. Uh, Samaritan's yeah. Purse. Is there another? Yes, and then the other, uh, the couple Panamanian oh, right. cargo airlines or whoever they are. They brought two. They actually, did. No, they took two out of the desert. Old D, old uh, AT, ATI, and there's those, and they're still they run those every so often up to Anchorage yeah. or whatnot through Miami. Um, I am, ooh, I'm never gonna get on that thing. But. There's two in Af- There's two in Africa. No, there's two in Africa that haven't been converted to the CFM 56s. Cool. There's still the turbo jets. Um, you can see them on 20 I mile think final. That's. <laughs> Exactly. Yes, and hear them on a twenty-mile funnel too, because I they can't probably have hush pits on them. No, I think yeah. that's it. So I think the NASA one's yeah. probably the only passenger one left out there. Quote, quote, passenger. You have to get NASA, NASA social media, a lot of that sort of stuff. Have you ever been on Sophia by chance? No, that one has been hit and miss repeatedly. Uh, you have to set aside three whole days to do it. 
and then they, the scrub rate is pretty high. So um, I've never really had the time, which I, I should just make it at some point um, if I can find someone to take an article on it one day. But um, I'll, I'll be your I'll be your assistant. <laughs> yeah, sure. Done. Sold. Um, but they require three days. You have to be there the day before for egress training, uh, the day of the flight. And then they're, they're obviously they're all overnights because, you know, it's a telescope and telescopes, uh, I'm told, uh, don't really work as well in the day as they do at night. So, and you, Oh, that's, that's fake news. Come on. Yeah. You know, I haven't verified <laughs> it personally. Um, but my eyes did hurt after I loaded, looked directly into that eclipse. So there might be something to mm. that. I did not look into an eclipse. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, they, they require a day ahead for evacuation training. The day that you're there, you have to go for mission briefing. And then you get on the plane, you fly 12 hours on a red eye effectively. And then you have to be checked into a hotel for 12 hours before um, they will let you leave. So it's, it's really? a three-day affair. Uh, so they make sure that you don't drive yourself into a pole three miles outside of Mojave. Sorry, Palmdale. Oh, well, that's... Because well, you're that's, too tired. Uh, you know what? That's a good, <laughs> that's a good liability right there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> For the insurance problem. Yeah, you have, you have uh, to sign off it, and the hotel, uh, they may have changed it, but at least at the last time I looked into it seriously, you have to, the hotel has to sign off that you didn't leave your room for 12 hours. Wow. Damn. Um, I forgot to ask this question, but uh, what's your favorite event or, or location outside of general airport spotting? Hmm, that's a good question. Oshkosh is always amazing. Uh, it's chill. It doesn't have. Uh, it lacks like the excitement and vibe of some of the bigger air shows that you can go to, but it's chill. The people are great most of the time. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's easy, and you get to see a bunch of rare stuff. That you and they're airworthy that you generally don't get to see anywhere else. Red flags are fun for the for a similar reason, though they're also really hot. I don't like being hot, so um, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say those two probably some of the some of the most fun. All right. What right. about you? Uh, have you made up to? Oh, you're flipping I'm on flipping me. On all you. right. Yeah. Well, I got. All right. Okay. Well, let's see. Um, I love going out to red flags as well. Um, I mean, I, I love shooting the, the military stuff out that way, but man, one of my favorite events is, you know, I honestly love just, you know, I really haven't thought about this. You just caught me off guard. Good job, Jeremy. You just stumped the host. You just stumped the chump. <laughs> it's the easiest way to get invited back. <laughs> Yeah, or or that's not. what I meant. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean you're you're an interesting guy. People are gonna probably ask to have you back. <laughs> Jokes you know, on them. <laughs> I I really don't know to be honest. I mean, I love going out to red flags. I, I used to love going out to, to Jedi Transition, that is or Star Wars Canyon. Unfortunately, you know that's just hasn't happened. And I know there's other places around the Sidewinder, but you know. I, I talked about this with Dave's episode last week. Is I had help from a from an individual, and I found my own little my own little slice of low level heaven in Idaho. And I I'm not going to tell people where it's at, so I see what happens when people know where this stuff is. Um, so that's staying between me and, and my other friend. But 
You, you, you can blindfold me and take me out. I'll never know where I was. I'll never know how I got there. I'm a very compliant yeah, no. person in the back of a car. I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll make you. I'll make you. Uh, I'll make you sign an NDA. It's going to be notarized as a legal document. So if you say anything, I have legal authority over you. Sold. I'm very, very uh, good at signing waivers yeah. and NDAs. Yeah, yeah in front of. All yeah. right. Well, maybe we'll see. <laughs> but uh, this this area where I go to, um, I'm at a cell service. I'm in the middle of of the Idaho wilderness. Well, I say middle. I'm in the Idaho wilderness. Um, I have a gorgeous scenery, and it's 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 just peaceful. And then a tens flight through it, <laughs> and then it's peaceful again. So I mean, in that general sense, I think my favorite event has to be the red flags, and just any other air show I go to. I mean, going to an air show is just a great event because you're with like-minded people. You get to take photos of airplanes, cool airplanes, boring airplanes, just airplanes and cool photos and cool photos of boring airplanes. But you also get to meet a lot of people out there too. And that's what makes these events worth it is you get to meet new friends. You get to be exposed to more, uh, not just culture of where that person's from, but you know, their history and their background in aviation photography, and you get to hear their stories. And that's why I love talking to you on this specific episode is because you have some absolutely phenomenal stories that not a lot of people would have ever known about and that people would love to hear because you can share those stories. And that's why I wanted you to come on to share those experiences with the listener out there because a lot of the people have, will never ever fly in a DC-10 unless they go fly the KC-10 for the Air Force or they go fly an Omega one. Um, you know, or unless people get media on the NASA DC-8 flights. And by the way, getting media with NASA is extremely difficult to do. It's not easy. Um, in that sense, meeting the peoples at the uh, just every air show in general or every big event I love going to because we get to meet new people. We get to be exposed to new people. Um, and that's why, that's why I think one of my types of events is when I'm able to socialize with people and get to know them. I think that's kind of the heart of spotting though, isn't it? That it's just as much a social event as it is about the planes, as it is about the photography. It is. It is. And that's what people need to realize is, um, you know, be social, get to know one another, especially right now. I mean, you know, the social media and getting people and getting to know people online is all well and dandy. Um, you know, with you is I met you at LAX in 2015, mm-hmm. and we just kind of talked from there. I mean, that's how we got to know each other. Um, I mean, I met people on Instagram that I've met in person finally. I mean, it's kind of the other way around. And I, I really do think that, you know, being a social person in this sphere pays dividends down the road because you don't know who you're talking to and what doors they can open for you and, and stuff like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. So, well, man, since we started talking about that, let's start wrapping the show up, man. Do you have any tips, words of encouragements, or anything else for the listener out there? Do what makes you happy, man. Do what makes you happy. That's, uh, I, I, I think, particularly as someone who's transitioned into it as a, as a way that partly pays the bills, uh, you know, you get the plus side and you get the downside of turning your hobby into a career. And uh, do what makes you happy. 
if you like quarter angles yeah. and blue sky, and we just spent 10 minutes talking about how they're fine, but meh. But if that makes you happy, shoot them all the heck you want. Who cares? It, uh, yeah. If uh, going out to the middle of nowhere in a peaceful place with the A-10s makes you happy, do that. Ain't got time for anything else. That's well, well said. Um, well, where can the listener... Actually, you know what? Before we, before we stop, we mentioned this at the beginning of the show. You have a massive airline memorabilia collection. Just for, can you just elaborate on the stuff that you have and you have collected? Because you have some absolutely amazing stuff. Yeah, I guess that's somewhere between a hobby and a problem. Um, it's kind of <laughs> hard to say. Uh, especially this year, it's kind of gone crazy because, you know, it's not like I can go out and fly anywhere, uh, it, you know, at the rate I once did. So now I'm just constantly yeah. looking for estate sales and eBay. But anyway, yeah, I, I've been collecting uh, heavily uh, for maybe four or five years now. Um, and it got jump started two, year, two years ago when I uh, bought some guy's entire 5,000-piece estate from Omaha, Nebraska. That was kind of crazy. Flew out to see him off a Craigslist ad, negotiated it, and then uh, bought 5,000 items, seven full tote tub things, storage totes full, and brought them all back to Seattle in... uh, what really jump-started. That's kind of when it probably turned into problem, if I'm being honest, uh, but a good problem. Uh, so, yeah, I got... Uh, I, I like specifically collecting between the time period of 1955 and 1972. Uh, so that would have been uh, when okay. the DC-7 was at its prime and the, the L-10-49 uh, Super Connie. Uh, I probably said that wrong and someone will email me about that but the super connie will make it simple uh the dc7c Mm. was out uh so you had the the epitome of piston technology but like the the jets were right around the corner and obviously you already had a few you had the comet from the early 50s you had the tu-134 operating in the soviet union um but uh, the dc-8 and the 707 um you go from dc-7 to DC-8, 707, to uh, supersonic in the stretch of 15 years. That's And then and then step down to the 747. Uh, that's just bonkers to me. So I, I love focusing on that range. And so a lot of the stuff I've got is from uh, late 50s to early 70s. Yeah, that's an amazing time. Probably one of the golden ages of aviation. Ooh, as well. Tough phrase there. That's another, that's another show, though. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think some of the, the neater pieces, I've got a, an uh, American Airlines uh, 707 Astrojet poster from 1961, one of the, the big 40 by 28s. Got a bunch of Boeing brochures, uh, 600 ads, about 1,000 different safety cards, um, everything from the Strato Cruiser to the 7810, uh, and everything in between. It's a lot of fun. Dangerous, but fun expensive <laughs> yeah uh now now i'm kind of wheeling and dealing on both ends um so if you want some safety cards come find me specific if you have i have a very specific card i'm trying to find 
and for the listener out there, I'm trying to find a Northwest Airlines 727 in 200 in the bowling shoe one. And this is the one right before they retired the 727. The reason being is I flew on that aircraft as a kid, and that's the aircraft that got me into aviation. And I really want that safety card. So if you have one or anybody else has one, if you have one out there, listener, and you give me that, I'll put you on the show. Don't care who you are, you're coming on the show. So What, what year would uh, that have been about? Uh, they said they retired that aircraft in 2003, so I think up into from like 97 to 2003 maybe. Okay. So um, I think in that, that sort of frame, but... Um, I, one last question for you before we really wrap up the show. Besides the Beeman Bangladesh DC-10 flight, what was your other, or what trip was your favorite trip of all time that you've ever taken? I think it's still the United 747 last flight. Just hard to beat. It was just, it was a lot of fun. And I shot that in film, uh, which was a great challenge. Really? Yeah, I did uh, did two rolls of uh, film on uh, can. They said do vintage, so I took that seriously, and I brought a 1970s <laughs> camera and uh, shot part of the assignment in film. That was pretty fun. All right, that's... And you guys also did a circle over San Francisco too, right? You flew right over the Golden Gate pretty... They kept you guys pretty low also. We did. They, they shot... Uh, they didn't do a circle, but they, they shot... Uh, I can't remember the name of the approach, but it was a pretty low track over the city with a real low bank over uh, the bridge. I was on the opposite side, so I didn't see the bridge, but I heard everyone gasping at the bridge, so it sounded like it was pretty cool. Also, I remember that you guys had mechanical issues. Yeah. And you guys had to sit on the, on the edge of the runway. I'm tell I I have to tell this story because I was up there uh, at the spotting garage because SFO when there's a big event SFO is a really awesome airport uh, administrative wise yeah, because are. they let the people use the Westfield parking garage. Do not use the Westfield parking garage for, if you do not have permission. People do not do it. You will get in trouble. Um, but we all have permission to be up there. We all wanted him you at the seven four seven to take off on two eight. Uh, left unfortunately there was a mechanical issue and you taxied over to hold on to a right for 25 minutes at that same time i don't think you guys could see but their stairs went up to the backup 747 and all of a sudden the lights went on and the apu turned on not that i did not know and we're all thinking yes we're all thinking Oh, God. Here we go. There will be two United 747s back at the gate. No. So, we're all going, okay, he's going to take it nice and short, nice and long. Wrong. You guys are up like a rocket. Oh, yeah, he got up real quick. <laughs> and no, And nobody was expecting that from the parking garage. We're all going... Are you kidding me? So I had a pretty, it's a semi-decent heat, little heat hazy shot of the rotation with the water, with the runway. And it just, I don't think anybody got a very decent shot because it was really early on the raw runway. Uh, but still, I mean, just being out there and experiencing that. Uh, my first time spotting an SFO. And I remember the radio call sign that the... Um, the pilot made, and I believe the call sign was United 747. Yep. I believe right. when he 
when the pilot said, when they said, you know, SFO Tower said, you know, United 747 heavy clear for departure runway 28 left, you know, thank you for, thank you for 50 years of the 747. The pilot said, clear for takeoff, 28 right, queen of the skies, 747 nice. heavy. For his final takeoff call. And that was awesome. That's, that's one thing that uh, was one of the best bonding days of my life because... I've never I've taken one shot of the United 747 previously, and that was with Mount Rainier in the oh, background, awesome. my first ever Seattle spotting trip. Thanks to Daniel Gorn, who was doing 90 down the freeway, coming from Paintsfield, because yeah. <laughs> it's diverting. Um, so shout out to Daniel. Thanks for getting me there in time, because I absolutely adore that photo with Mount Rainier in the background. And um, yeah, so that's kind of a little story that, that we kind of we kind of have together on the opposite end, spotter and traveler but i had to ask that question because you had taken so many trips and um also just kind of wrapping it up here thank you so much for everything you've done for me um you got me involved for a little bit with nyc aviation and i just want to say thank you for being a mentor to me and being in a, a very inspirational person uh, a lot of what you've taken um has rubbed up on me and i've tried to do my best to kind of replicate what you kind of do. So um, just thank you for everything for you done for me and just being an amazing friend uh, over the past couple I, of years. I appreciate that. That's very nice of you. Thank you. And it's uh, been absolute pleasure uh, to uh, to have you in my life as well. I look forward to that continuing. Yeah, hopefully next time I'm in Seattle, we'll go have some yeah, lunch or something like that. Um, anyway, man. So the big question is, where can everybody find your work? You've talked about all these stories all your memorabilia, all the photos you've taken. So where can people find those photos? And they're, they're in a lot of places, but where can people find you, your specific work and support you as a professional uh, photographer that makes a living up at this well, stuff? The easiest place you can find me is Twitter at photo JDL, uh, my initials. Uh, I'm not using that as much these days, which is a shame because it's where I have the, the strongest following. Uh, I've, Switch more over to Instagram, uh, photo JDL2, uh, because I'm stupid and had photo JDL, lost the password, forgot. For, anyway, I have both, but I only use the one with a two. There isn't actually one. That's also me, but I lost that one, as I mentioned, and so two, photo JDL2. Um, but you can friend either of them, but nothing's going to happen at the other one. That's my fault. Anyway, <laughs> uh too much information. Uh, I'm also on Flickr. Uh, what is my Flickr handle? I don't really pay attention to that. Uh, JPL Photo Archives. And there are, says 46,303 photos on there. So that should Holy keep you busy crap. for a while. Um, Instagram is curated, so I tend to pull things specific to uh, an item that interested me that day or something in the news or whatever. Flickr is just a dump of everything, and all the historical stuff that I've taken, I've, I've been gradually photographing all the collection. Uh, all of those are in high-res, uh, public domain, creative common download. You can do whatever you want with them, look through them all in detail, go nuts. So those are available for anyone to use at any time, any of the historical stuff. Awesome, and if people are interested in your uh, zoology photos, where can they find those also? Pretty much... Uh, anywhere that woodland park zoo exists so uh zoo.org um someone in 
the 19, late 1970s or early 80s really thought ahead on that one and got zoo.org locked down before anyone else did. Well played, whoever that was. Nice. Um, and uh, Woodland Park Zoo exists on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, anything that any of the major social media handles and a lot of the work that you'll you'll see there will be uh, will be mine. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, make sure to go give Jeremy a follow. You guys will not be disappointed, um, especially some of the hist- so the older stuff that he has taken. Um, I remember I flipped through some of these photos growing up, and I'm going, oh, I wonder who took these. And I'm going, well, now I'm talking to him. So do yourself a favor. Go check him out. Go give him a follow. Go support his work. He does this for a living. You Trust me, you will not be disappointed at all. Um, anyway, guys, this is the time. This is the part of the show where I also do my spiel. If you know anybody who wants to come on the show or deserves to come on the show or you think should come on the show, hit me up, DM me, at BOI Spotter, Instagram, and Twitter. Send us a uh, message on Facebook, Spotters Podcast, or Aviation Spotters Podcast on Facebook. Email me, Podcast at gmail.com, and please remember to use the hashtags on your social media, your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever you use, hashtag Podcast or hashtag, and or hashtag, Pod. Start tagging those photos, guys, because I'll reach out to these guys that you tag, and they'll be on the show. So anyway, uh, Jeremy, do you have anything else to add before we uh, It's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to uh, joining you again on the show uh, in the future, and uh, hopefully see you sometime soon. Absolutely. You will see me sometime soon, especially if this COVID vaccine crossing does work. Fingers. I will be up there for sure. It, yeah, I'm crossing all of mine as well as an airline employee. Um we will be doing a part two with you one day because it's just going to be a Jeremy Tells His Aviation Stories episode. And I know a lot of people are going to request that because you are such an interesting guy to talk to. So expect that, guys. Anyways, as I always say here at the end of each episode, guys, keep those batteries charged and those cameras ready. And we'll catch you next time here on another episode of the Aviation Spotters Podcast. <laughs>